Hey, what's up, friends? Mike Myers here with the Songwriting for Guitar podcast, episode number 26, Trevor Hinesley. Now, he is one of three CEOs of Soundstripe, one of the fastest growing companies in Tennessee. How do you make that jump from musician to entrepreneur? Well, when we talk with Trevor, we're going to learn that it isn't a jump because when you're a musician, you are an entrepreneur. You have to have a business mindset. So we're going to get into all of that. So this is an episode you're going to love. So let's delve into it. Episode number 26, Trevor Hinesley. Dude, I am, I'm stoked because your story is super interesting to me because I remember meeting you when we played like way back in the day, like MySpace, you know, neon days of, oh, yeah. like, of glory. And then seeing you go from, you know, playing in a local band to eventually in a touring band, like, would you say like touring Christian pop rock band would be the, the category? Yeah, we uh we basically we did play some in the Christian market and we were signed to a Christian label, but we were we were crossover. I mean, the band itself was basically like one weekend we'd be out with like Jeremy Camp and the next we'd be like, you know, playing a festival with Ozzy and Outkast. So it was kind of all over the place. And we'll work up to what you're doing now. But like, how did you get involved? Was like basically songwriting, like touring guitarist, what you wanted to do like early on? From the time I was like 11 or 12, I knew music was like all I wanted to do. You know, I just wanted to tour and that was the dream and blah, blah, blah. And we had a couple uh, couple people from my hometown. Shout out to uh, John Mildrum. That was he goes by nickname Fish. He played guitar for a band called Course of Nature. They were like a big radio rock band. And then uh, we had another Emil Wurstler, who's uh, he's he's still in the industry, too. And he's a. Uh, he does a lot of stuff with like clinics with Paul Reed Smith. So he's like a big PRS guy and they do like oh, jazz nice. clinics and stuff together. So those two guys were like idols of mine growing up in Dothan, Alabama, my little hometown. But that's, you know, all I wanted to do was play music. And I went to college, got my degree and I had auditioned. Okay. So the, when me and you met, I was playing yeah. for a pop group and you were, you know, in uh, it was Cardboard Spaceship Adventure, right? Yeah, it was a, another pop group. <laughs> another pop group, exactly. So, I was also in. Uh, I was in a pop group called Half Price Hearts, and we were we played that show together. I was still in Half Price Hearts when I auditioned. Uh, I got a call from a friend of mine, and he had recommended me to audition for guitar for this band. You know, that was looking for other members. So I went and did the audition. I uh, got the call. I, if I remember correctly, it was the day of my college graduation rehearsal. I think I was like in cap and gown when I got the call that, you know, I, that I got it or something like that. I can't remember the timing exactly, but I was so amped. I knew I was going to, you know, as soon as I was out of college, I was going to go straight into, we were signing a development deal. So I kind of went into that, but straight out of college, my degree was in computer science and audio engineering. And I knew that, you know, I still wanted to work on what I had studied. So while we were spending a year, like we signed a record deal without a, we didn't have a band name, a genre or any music. And it was very interesting. Okay, okay, okay. so right there, I got to stop. Cause, so no band name. Yeah. No, and it's just like, so what was the premise of the development deal? Was it kind of like almost like finding the people that fit and then developing essentially kind of like a little bit of a brand? Like, what is it going to be? I mean, it was essentially like there was, you know, we had an, like, there was like an idea for how we wanted everything to be, right? And there was, there was already like a couple members. So it wasn't, you know, like it wasn't like they're just going to find these random people and put them together and make a band by it. it was just like filling out this idea for essentially, you know, like a 
girl fronted rock band and our vocalist, um, super talented, seriously, one of the most incredible musicians, artists I've ever worked with to date. She's just like inhuman and everybody in that band, just uh, like I was very honored to be able to play alongside all those people because, uh, today they're still some of my best friends. I see them regularly and it was, it was just like, it felt like I was kind of in a dream because I wasn't expecting, I was hopeful, but I wasn't expecting to get picked, you know, since I was just trying out for this guitar position and this thing that definitely seemed like a pipe dream to me. Like, I was, there's no way I'm going to get this. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, they, again, they had an idea for it. And when I say we had no music, it's because they had done tons of demos. Like, I think... At the time, the guitarist and the vocalist, who were the two main ones that were leading up the project, they had done like over a hundred songs, but they were all over the place. Everything from raw electronic to like straight up, you know, borderline bubblegum pop, all the way to like heavier, dark, new metal type stuff. So it was like we, we had no idea what direction it was going to go, but the label really believed in the guitar player and the vocalist that were already there and they were filling it out by by the band holding auditions for the remaining drummer and guitar player so uh that's essentially how i got in it and you know again we still had to figure out like there's something here we just had to figure out what it was going to be and so for the first year it was a lot of just figuring it out and while i did that i got a job as a uh who shout out to this human who's an incredible person Uh, his name's rob humphreys he was my first boss straight out of college uh, and also shout out to my friend Dennis Monzowick, who gave me the connection to Rob. Rob, I had sat down with him. I had lost three job offers because every time I would interview, you know, I'd get start going through the paces. And as soon as we got near the offer stage, I was always transparent that like, hey, I'm glad you're interested and I'm super pumped about this, but I need you to know that, you know, like I am probably going to be touring in about a year. And this was in 2013 when remote work was not a normal thing. So as soon as I was like, hey, I'm going to need to be able to work remote in about a year, if at all possible. Um, You know, I'll work in office till then, blah, blah, blah. But um, I feel like every girlfriend that I had where I was like, listen, I should let you know I'm in a band. I'll be touring. This may not work out. And usually that's what happened. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yep, they all, you know, were like, "Uh, no, thank you. And so I was like without a job. I was like two months out of college. Like I got to figure something out. I was getting literally I started applying to just wait tables, you know, because I was like, I would rather just have some income. And that's the typical artist thing. You know, you work a few side jobs and you make it work when you're not on the road. So I was going to do that, but I just, it bummed me out that I wasn't able to use my degree. So I just kept trying for it. Again, my friend Dennis did an email intro with his friend Rob, who was the CEO of a new startup in town. I went and had coffee with Rob. This was just a couple days after I'd lost those other offers. And I told him the story. I was like, look, I'm just going to start with this. Like, I am, I explained the whole thing. And he was like, he just straight up said, look, man, like, I like you and I want to help you pursue both of your dreams. So, like, if you can start tomorrow, let's do this. And you can go work remote in a year and we'll just keep, take it from there. And I was like, what? So I, That's you know. It's amazing to have oh. someone that understanding about like, yeah, this is the thing I'm doing, but I'm also passionate about this and being like, cool, let's let's work this out. Dude, he just is such a good human. I still get dinner with him and his family, uh, his wife and kids, you know, once or twice a year. Just great people. Uh, and I owe a lot to him giving me a shot because that was just that was all I was asking for. It's just someone to give me a chance to prove that I would work hard whether I was there or not. You know, if I was remote, I'd make it work. So he did give me that chance. And funny enough, I had 
think, I don't know if he's still there, but after he left that startup, he went to be CFO of Goatee Records, which is like Toby Max. Oh, uh, shit. Thing. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. he wound up getting into music too, which is ironic. So he had a real <laughs> heart for like art and creativity and stuff and just a great human. So I, I worked, did that for a while. We started touring. I did eventually transition to remote. And then through that time, when my boss left, I wound up leaving that same company. I did some freelance work for him, but I moved into working for uh, like an app agency. And so I did, you know, I built apps for everything from like quick little campaign sites for uh, like billboard artists that were doing like a, you know, a secret release or something like that, all the way to like, you know, doing larger Fortune 500 brand sites and stuff. So it was kind of all over the place, but I got I got some experience with building like really high traffic sites really quick. So I, you know, kind of learned trial by fire and I did that while I toured. So I toured full time. I was not this is like, you know, the nature of where we were at as a band is we were doing like our second tour was an arena tour. Again, all this felt like a dream. I mean, it was definitely like, what is happening? And we, our second tour was an uh, arena tour. And we, but I, I had to do my, I was on retainer with an app agency for like 30 hours a week of work. So I was doing that while we were touring because we just weren't making any money. I mean, we were playing again. I mean, you know this all too well too, but it's always like glamorous from the outside looking in, but it was like we were on tours most of the time. Thankfully for the arena tour, we were on a bus. It was the only tour we did on a bus. But most of the time we were in a van and we were on tours with bands that were in buses. So all the shows were routed for bus travel. So we would drive like 12 hours overnight in our van, you know. And meanwhile, our guitar player owned a business with like 15 employees. Our drummer uh, ran a custom furniture and handyman contract thing on the side. Our vocalist had a, she was a hair and makeup artist and did all sorts of custom clothes and stuff. So we were all doing our own thing. Like we were kind of a, it was a fun, unique experience because everybody was really driven and entrepreneurial in their own right. But we had to do that. I was going to say, that's like a, that's like a group of entrepreneurs that just formed a band. But like, I'm struggling. How does your brain go from, okay, I'm building this app. And then suddenly you guys switch brains to like, okay, let's play a show. And then the show's done. And it's like, God, I'm exhausted. Well, 12 hours to the next city. Here we go. Well, thankfully, a lot of times, one of my band members in particular is just a superhuman, and I don't think he required sleep because he had that business with like 15 employees, and he did probably majority of the driving. So I don't know how he survived, but we did, you know, switch off on driving and stuff. But it was brutal, man. I'm not going to lie. Like, I, especially towards the end of my touring career, well, to take a step back too, like we were, we were doing these tours and, I had that app agency job. I was still doing some freelance work on the side. I had started a attempt at a passive income software as a service product with a buddy and we were touring full time. So like I was way overcommitted. I was anytime I was not on a stage sound checking or playing or, you know, signing stuff or selling merch or whatever, I was sitting behind a computer working on something. So during the day when we would travel, I'd wake up in the morning, I'd start working, I'd do conference calls and meetings and stuff. And then we would set up and then I'd repeat and then we'd play and then I'd repeat and then we'd sign and tear down. And then I would, you know, sometimes till two or three in the morning, we would be working. So towards the end, the last year of that, I started what's now my main business, Soundstripe. I did not start it. I was with two other guys that had the idea for it and they brought me in as co-founder. And we launched that in 2016 and uh, that my mental state 
went downhill quickly because I was doing all of the above while touring full time. And it was just, I mean, by the time I quit touring, we had like six employees, I think at Soundstripe and it was just too much to manage. And I was like, I got to make a decision. Well, yeah. How can you, you can't handle that and keep yourself healthy, both physically and mentally when you're trying to appease both ends. You just can't. It's no, just no, like no. eventually things are going to fall apart. One, and you kind of make that choice of like, okay, what do I want to do? And I think it's cool that you started out because I feel like the guy that you mentioned at the very beginning ended up being kind of like, I feel like the spark. You said he was like, it was a startup. And like, it seems yep. like everything that you've done, it's also kind of like that. I don't know. I hate to pull in like punk rock DIY ethics, but it's kind of like <laughs> build it from the ground up. It's like, yes. I feel like that's the kind of state now where it's like, a lot of musicians now are kind of being like, you know what? I could work for somebody else or I could just build this myself. Oh, dude. And that's, <laughs> you know, when we were starting Soundstripe. So for like anyone that's listening, Soundstripe is essentially like a we do unlimited music for creators. So like if you're a YouTube or podcast or whatever and you need music, that's what we do. We sell it in a subscription form online. And our big thing when we started, my two co-founders were also from the industry and we all knew the pain points like that going back to full circle, that arena tour I was talking about, one of my biggest bucket list items, which is also sobering from a financial standpoint, is we played uh, the Georgia Dome. It was our only stadium show I ever played. And there was like 38,000 people there. And my paycheck was $50. Like that's what <laughs> I made that night. So it, again, it looked very glamorous. You know, we had like, we were on these massive arena stadium stages and like, playing with bands I grew up listening to and all this stuff. But like we were, if we had not had our other jobs that we were like focusing on, like we would not have been able to breathe doing that. So, and that, that's the pain point I knew trying to make, you know, just a middle-class income as a musician, which was non-existent. And my two co-founders that I wound up meeting, uh, shout out to another friend. His name's Trevor Sarver. He owns an awesome merch company called 85 supply.com. Check them out. They, he introduced me to Micah and Travis, who are the co-CEOs of Soundstripe and my two business partners. And they knew the pain points well. Micah was a very established rock guitar player too. He was, at the age of 16, he got picked up by a band called Falling Up. They're like a, they were a Christian rock group. Played with them for a few years. And then he transitioned to a band called Disciple and he toured with them for eight to 10 years. And then our uh, other co-founder, business partner, Travis Terrell, he is, we always joke that he's like, the, he's like the real musician of us three because he is a, <laughs> dude, he is a, I mean, he's a prodigy. He's inhuman. He's one of those, like he plays fiddle. And by, I mean, he was playing with like Willie Nelson and George Strait in his like early well, 20s. Well, damn. Okay. Yeah. Just, just crazy. <laughs> but all of us, like that, here's what's funny. Both of them, when I met them had transitioned to driving tour buses because in Micah's case, he literally moved from playing guitar to driving the bus of the same band because he made more money as the bus driver than he did oh playing. So, and it, that we, I know it's, it's like, it's depressing, but it was the reality, you know? And it was like yeah. crazy, but we all knew those pain points. And part of Soundstripe was like, can we figure out a way to, you know, provide a way for creators uh, on both sides, on the artist side to make music and have it be above board and not get in some over your head sunset clause situation where you are crazy 360 deal that you can't get out of. Can we just figure out a way to make that work? And then on the customer side, can we provide really high quality music for high output content creators that need a bunch of it 
at a really affordable price. And those were the two, our missions keep creatives creating. And that's kind of the bridge we were trying to gap. Dude, that is wonderful. And it's crazy to think you were playing the Georgia, like that's huge. And being like, hey, here's 50 bucks. It's like <laughs> it's like your grandma sent you a card that said, happy birthday. Here's $50. And it's like, thank you. Oh, really? and it, it's, it, oh. it was crazy because I was, I mean, and we were all very fortunate for where the band was at at the time. But the reality is, is like we were at the stage doing the classic like exposure thing, right? We had gotten on this tour and we were trying to get our name out there and stuff. And we were basically with all the costs and everything in there, despite it being a massive tour, we were like breaking even. So I was lucky to even have my paycheck, you know? And it, yeah, it's just brutal. It's like, and again, it's never as pretty on the inside than it looks on the outside, but it's just, all that goes back to like a band, like anything else is a small business and you have to treat it as such, or it will die a slow death or never get off the ground to begin with. Like what you're saying, I'm like, yes, it has to be. Because when you're, especially independent, you're dealing with so many hats. You're yeah. being like, okay, I'm. you were saying, I'm selling the merch. I'm talking to people. I'm tearing down. It's just like <laughs> describing right. like five different jobs that, again, yep. you may not see a paycheck. You may get like a small amount. You may break yep. even. And then you get in the car and you're like, here's my other job. But like the company that you found, you know, you you helped start up, like, you know, you guys were rated like the top places to work in like 2019. Like it's one of the fastest growing places in Tennessee to work. And it just seems like you guys are getting accolades and all these awards constantly because I think you guys are creatives. It's not just people that were just like, oh, I'm going to create this business. It's like you understand the process. And as you said, the pain points of people that are creating content and they're just like, how do they not get into these weird deals and swindled? That itself is an interesting topic because I, you know, we were always up front with people from the get go that like, in terms of artists we worked with with Soundstripe, that like, we are not here to make you Katy Perry. Like, that is not what our mission is. Like, we're trying to provide supplemental middle class level income to artists that want to make money from what they do. And there's a lot of people that just want to make music. They don't want to tear up and set down merch. They don't want to leave their family and tour. They don't want to deal with the like hassle of you know getting management working with the label having to figure out the financial and business sides like a lot that is that is starting your own business and the problem is is that there's only been really one route to being an artist and it's that and if you get to a certain point you sign a label deal which really if you look at it is just a large business buying a small business that's what <laughs> a record contract is right and yeah. and those are normal but the problem is is that a lot of times when people get into them, they either don't know what they're getting into or they do. And this is probably controversial, but I, I do see this a lot in the industry or people will sign a deal knowing what they're getting into. But when it actually takes off, they're bummed that they didn't negotiate a better deal. And the reality is, is that the label is taking a risk on you and you are also taking a risk on the label. So when you go into a deal, they're going to protect their side. You've got to protect your side. And it is on them to be transparent and honest, but it's also on you to do your due diligence, right? So it's like, you, you, it's a two-sided deal and they can't negotiate for both sides, just like you can't negotiate for their side. So again, uh, I feel like it's dating. It suddenly is like, you may learn some shit later on about <laughs> each other that you're not crazy about. And you're like, I should have asked more questions in the beginning. I really should have. <laughs> it's so true. And, but, you know, it's a... 
that's what we've always been upfront with artists about is that like, again, we are not here to make a Katy Perry. We, uh, we actually operate a model where we do full buyouts of our music. So we own, you know, we own all of our music in our catalog, but it's very above board. We present them. If I remember correctly, I think, uh, I haven't looked at it in a while, but I think our contract uh, is one page. Like it's very simple and straightforward. Um, but it's, you know, it's done in a way that's like, a very give and take. It's not, there's no sunset clause. We don't have any, like, we don't touch everything else you do. You can have a band on the side. You can have record deals on the side. Like we don't care. We are literally just buying a good in exchange for the rights, right? Like that's what we're doing. So it's like a, if you take a look at what a record deal does is there's a lot of risk associated and on all sides and you are building a small business. It's again, I look at a record contract as a small business being bought or doing a partnership with a large business, but there was not a way to just have a middle class, uh, nine to five or even contract type labor thing in the music industry. And that's what we wanted to do was like, okay, instead of me coming home from tour and having to wait tables, maybe I can come home from tour and just write some songs and build my craft and make money from that. And that was really what we were trying to provide is like, if you like doing music, if you want to create more music, we can provide a way to supplement your income that way and provide like a stable, you know, upfront revenue stream for that. And that's, which I that's think is fantastic because I don't think a lot of musicians realize sync licensing and what it can do for them. This idea of like, hey, I can create music, instrumental work. You know, I was right. talking to Aaron Sprinkle, who's one of your composers, and he was like, yeah, I love it. He was like, it's great. I he was like, I've made all these albums because I he's you know, I'm a music junkie. I love this. And like they didn't have this album. And so I was like, cool, I'm going to make 10 songs of this. I'm going to make 10 songs and just getting lost into that process and knowing, hey, I made money. It's going to have a home and right. that's fine with me. That's what it needs to be. I think it's fantastic. That's been our heart with it too, is like, and that, that I think why something like this hasn't, there are stuff, right? You've got like uh songwriting deals, like staffed, um, you know, staff deals as a writer and stuff, but still that's very much like a label contract where you've got like, you can only work for them, anything you touch, they own a percentage of blah, blah, blah. So we were just trying to find a way to like, we modeled it after, which this isn't really groundbreaking. It just seemed no brainer. Like it was like take a look at the software industry. I can go work for Google during the day, but if I go home and I create Uber, I own it. So like, why couldn't music be the same way? Because <laughs> yeah. right now it's like, we just own everything you do while you work with us. And that, I, we were like, okay, I, why does it have to be that way? Why does it have to be this all encompassing IP buyout where like anything you touch, we have a part of. So we just tried to create like a, essentially like a work for hire give and take relationship. I think then artists and composers give their best work when they don't feel trapped in like, oh, <laughs> everything I have is going to be theirs. But knowing like, no, there's still freedom to grow. You can still write songs with other people. You're going to own rights to that. But these things right. still give you, and it's a great way for, as you said, to grow at your craft, understand instrumental cues and understand, like, I thought it was fucking gnarly when, you know, I thought of all the songs I wrote for the longest time being in a band, nothing happens. And then suddenly you do like an instrumental and it's like, oh, yeah, it's in the TV show. And you're like, what? <laughs> and it's that's the coolest like, feeling. Yeah. I, that was the most bare minimal like thing right there. You know, it was just kind of like ambient stuff. 
that made me more money than right. this song that I poured, you know, that we spent $1,200 to like, you know, you know, get the single produced and we put it out and we kind of made some money, but not really. It's like, holy shit, this is a thing that you can Dude, make money at. It, that is okay. You're nailing it because where people get hung up is there's two ways to look at this that I see it. One is I can own everything and take all of the risk as an artist. That is one way to do it. That is the, I want to be the Katy Perry or I want to be an independent artist doing X, Y, Z. Like that is a way to do it. But the other side is I can have stability or an upfront known paycheck or whatever ahead of time in exchange for not having to deal with all the risk. And that is how starting a business or being an employee works, right? So like it's this, we just modeled it after the same, like every other industry has this concept. Look at graphic design, right? It's a creative outlet. There are plenty of people who do freelance graphic design work and they sell all the rights to whoever they're doing it for. Do you think if I go contract someone to make a logo for my business that they get royalties on that? Absolutely not. I'm buying it from them, right? <laughs> so it's the same way with, you know, in good or bad, music has been built up on a royalty system, one that, to be honest, is outdated due to old copyright laws. But it's a, and it has been a great way for musicians to make money. But, you know, it's one of those like 100% of nothing is nothing, but 50% of something is more. So it's like, what is important to you, right? Do you want to take all the risk and do that? Because that's equivalent to starting your own business. Or do you want to just do what you love and get a paycheck for it? Because that's equivalent to being a contractor or an employee or whatever. So I think what has happened and that I think is unfortunate in the art world is that in music's art world is that people have looked at selling rights and stuff as like the biggest no-no. And there's a lot of like guru talk out there about that. And I don't think it's that you know, like cut and dry. Like if you are trying to be an artist and build your brand and stuff, there is an argument to be, to be made to hold on to all of your rights and stuff. Absolutely. But what is your goal at the end of the day? Is your goal to make money? Because if, if you are trying to do the artist route and the only thing you like making is shoegaze stuff, that's a tough career, <laughs> right? Like that's a tough career to make real money in. It's not that you can't, there are artists that have done it, but you could also turn around and find a really cool niche for your shoegaze stuff in sync licensing or in selling the rights to someone who has an audience for that or whatever. So I just don't think it's as cut and dry as no one should sell their rights and blah, blah, blah. Like, obviously, because my business buys rights. We don't believe <laughs> that that has to be the only way. I think you're showing that there's another way. And especially too, you said, like, what's your end goal? And I feel like sometimes people go, yeah, my end goal is... Um uh, it's, uh, and like, if you really sometimes ask people, there's not an end goal, they're not sure. And you're just yep. like, ah, there we go. And that's why it feels sometimes like you're running around in circles because you're not really doing, you're kind of going through the motions, but there was never an end means to what you were doing or producing and or creating what, right. what happens to it. And for some people that are just like, Hey, I like being a composer. Right. There, that is fine. You can be like, for me, I don't want to be Katy Perry. It's awesome. I'm not <laughs> right. worried about that. I, I enjoy sitting down knowing that, cool, I work from home. I sit down at my desk. I create music. Yep. And it'll find a home. It's cool. Exactly. exactly. And that's all I got to do. I think where I have a hard time with that too is that it, what really, I mean, breaks my heart because I am a creative too, man. Like again, from the time I was 12 years old, all I wanted to do was music. And it, what breaks my heart is seeing so much, what has, what I feel has been 
birthed in the music community has been a lot of unwarranted victim mentality because there is a time and place for expressing your concerns. And that's why we have songwriters that go to court over royalties and stuff. And that kind of thing makes sense. But when I see people who are having a really hard time saying like, like you can't, okay, I'll give you a good example. You can't blame Spotify's royalty for why you're not making money in music. That may contribute to it, right? Like maybe, maybe your music doesn't do great on Spotify and maybe you're, uh, I hate, I feel like I'm hating on shoegaze. I actually like shoegaze, but <laughs> let's say you take your shoegaze stuff and it doesn't do as well on Spotify. Okay. Maybe that's not a great avenue for it. Maybe you'd be better off making like a chill YouTube channel that you generate royalties on. Right. Or there are other ways to do this stuff, but I, what I hate seeing is like, there's legitimate arguments for all sides of like streaming royalties aren't high enough. And there's legitimate royalties for all sides of like, you should own your rights or you should sell your right or whatever. But when people latch onto that as an excuse, that is what bums me out because it doesn't hurt anyone but yourself. Like there's always going to be problems in every industry in every market type in every, no matter if streaming is the thing or iTunes or free music Napster era, like it doesn't matter. There's always going to be ways to make money if that is your goal. And so you can either blame the system and sit on your laurels or you can figure out a different way to do it because that's really the only two options. It doesn't mean that you're not, that you're like, you could be right in whatever you're saying and it's fine. Like, to express that and whatever. But what I see a lot of times and what, again, bums me out as a creative is almost accepting that, that victim identity. And it just, it's not, that's not productive. It's not productive for the industry and it's not productive for your own art and your own career. I remember for like two years, I was really into writing country songs all the time. Like I was down that right of being like country, country. And then nothing was really like working, like the feedback wasn't that great. And I was like, ah, and then the, the mentality of like, well, I guess I'm just bad at this. I'm guess I'm just bad at writing songs. I'm bad. And then suddenly it was like, oh, wait a minute. No, like things are working way better in like sync licensing when it comes to songwriting. The thing that I thought I was so bad about, it's like, no, you just didn't find the right avenue. And so when people have these songs and they're just like, ah, nothing's happening. It's like, yeah, are you looking at all the possibilities? Yeah, and it's funny when, yeah, I realize, you know, people talk about Spotify and songwriters, you know, band Spotify. And it's funny when I see posts like that. And then when they have a single that comes out and they post the Spotify link, I'm just like, I think that's really funny. But to me, it's like, I get that. And I, I, I right, understand right, right. some of that. But right. at the end of the day, it's like, how bad do you really want it? You keep on searching till you find an avenue or you, you take apart the thing and you go, what's not working well? And what can I do better? And what, is this the right avenue? Like, am totally. I, do I have a circle? And am I trying to fucking force it down a square? Because most likely I am. I need to find out where I fit. And it's that yep. continual, it's almost like what you were saying. You started out guitar, like you played in band. Then you went, and it's almost like that, you know, is not what they say in music school, probably like, this is how you will find your career. It's like <laughs> you go out and it's this kind of constant winding journey where eventually you go like, how the hell did I get here? And you look totally. and you're like, oh shit. Okay. Gotcha. Totally. I mean, okay. Take it like. Because again, there are very real problems in the music industry. And that is, I mean, that's part of why we started our business, right? But there is also like, when there are problems, there are typically opportunities. 
right? And that's yeah. why the victim mentality bums me out because it's like, there's a lot of really smart people like go fix it. That would be exciting, but it's not exciting to like just get bummed out and quit or get bummed out and, you know, yell about it with no real change or whatever it may be. Right. And that's why, like, I feel like I, I just much more prefer the people that wake up in the morning and go do something about it, whether it be do something in their own career sans the fact that the system is broken or if they go fix the system like those two things are more exciting than just yelling about it i probably mention him a lot but rob bell talks about where he's like what's the thing that pisses you off the most <laughs> it's awesome. and he's like cool whatever that is that's the thing you got to do that's the thing that you have to fix whatever drives you to be like so pissed that's okay cool that there's something wrong with that well what are you going to do about it Love fix that. it yeah yeah start delving in and doing that thing when people go like i could write a better song cool do it go do it do it <laughs> like, well, yeah. i think the, the system is so messed up cool go go then start delving in whatever it looks like but just i think like yes establish that even if there's something you may disagree with that's cool jump in and start doing something about because that's usually where the best things are it's messy it's sometimes half formed you're not sure what it looks like but over time as the things that you've created, it develops, it starts to yep. form, it starts to have legs and it starts going places. Yep, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Dude, this was awesome. Like, uh, I love this talk. Thanks for taking the time to just chat. And uh, I think I just, your story's cool and I want people to hear it. So thanks for doing it. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, I super enjoyed this and uh, love what you're doing here. Like, I feel like there's, it's great that there's an avenue for this kind of stuff. Like, open conversation and figuring out, you know, the best way to do creative endeavors because there's so many different and again, that's what's exciting to me. There's so many different ways to do this and I think talking about it and figuring this stuff out together as a community is one of the ways that it it drives stuff forward. So, thanks again for having me and super enjoyed it. <laughs> Since starting this podcast, I love it because people have been emailing me all across the globe and a lot of them have been asking, hey, can I have a lesson with you? Can you can you teach me some stuff? And my answer is always, yes, of course I can. All you have to do is go to songwritingforguitar.com. There's a button that says work with me. Just click it. You can book a consultation and we can delve into anything. If you're working on your next release, you want to get better at voicings. You want to come up with better strum patterns. If you just want to break out of your old routine, I can help you. So just go to songwritingforguitar.com, click the button, work with me, and you can set up your consultation. Well, that does it for this week's episode. It was Edden produced by Chris Fafalius. I'm Mike Myers. Thanks for listening.